<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey, Tom Harbin here. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. It's supported by advertising. So after this brief message, we'll get right into it. This portion of the Tom Hartman podcast is brought to you by Phone.com. Phone.com delivers the most comprehensive suite of phone features for business at the lowest price. Go to Phone.com, use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to save 20%. This is the Tom Hartman Program. On the line with us is Jeff Charlotte. He's the uh, author of six books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, and the follow-up, Sea Street, The Fundamentalist Threat to American Democracy. They've made this into a five-part miniseries over on Netflix. Louise and I have watched, I believe, the first three or four parts of this. I don't think we've gotten to the last one yet. And Jeff is on the line with us. You can tweet him at Jeff Charlotte, S-H-A-R-L-E-T. Jeff, welcome back to the program. This was absolutely fascinating. I mean, you and I have talked a number of times over the years, but it wasn't until I watched this documentary on Netflix that I really got how deeply embedded into the family you personally were, how you got there. I mean, you know, I, I know that you had told me your story on the air, but and, and I had, you know, I had read parts of it in your book, but um, it's just extraordinary. I strongly encourage anybody in America to watch this. For those people who don't know what we're talking about or what I'm blithering about here, give us a, a one-minute recap of what the family is, how you got inside it. Let's start with that. Well, the family is the oldest, the most influential, and, and strangely, it's got a peculiar affection for uh, privacy or secrecy. So it's the oldest, most influential, and most secretive Christian conservative organization in Washington. It goes back to the 1930s when it was formed as an anti-New Deal, anti-labor coalition politics that it's never really abandoned. They differ from other Christian right organizations in the sense that they are not interested in the masses. They're not interested in everyday people. They believe that the whole thing started when God came to the founder of the organization, so he said, and gave him a direct vision, so he said, saying that Christianity had been getting it wrong for 2,000 years with his focus on the poor and the suffering and the down and out, that God instead wanted him to be a minister to those whom he called the up and out, the elites key men. And that's what they've done. They focus on politicians, business people, military leaders in the United States and abroad. You know, there's no membership application. The way you get in, the way I stumbled on this is years ago, I was working on a book about the varieties of religious experience, and 
a friend asked me to meet with her brother, who she was afraid had joined a cult. He had sort of dropped out and moved to Washington to be a part of this thing. And he invited me to come and live with a group of young men who were being sort of groomed for leadership in the organization. And pretty quickly, I sensed the political scale of the event just by nature of the people I was meeting. I prayed with former Reagan Attorney General Ed Meese. There were senators, congressmen around, ambassadors. The then right-wing prime minister of Norway, Kivel Bondovic, just dropped by for a visit. Prominent right-wing columnist Cal Thomas came and gave us a lesson in biblical capitalism. And so I saw this was a much larger thing, and that's what led me into my investigation. As I was watching this, and I was watching the, essentially, I'm assuming, recreation of your, of your young experience there, it occurred to me that you had dangled in front of you this extraordinary opportunity. You could spend the rest of your life hanging out with the, the extremely wealthy and the extremely powerful in a, you know, <laughs> in beyond five-star accommodations, living a life of wealth and power that's just unimaginable to most Americans, and yet you turned away from it and chose to expose it. What caused that? One of the things what we want to show in the Netflix series, we want to show the appeal, right? I think for a lot of secular people, for a lot of liberal people, they can look at Christian conservatives and they tell themselves, oh, these people are just dupes or fools or something like that. And that's not the case. The family are sophisticated folks, they're educated folks, they are pretty much affluent, wealthy folks. What is the appeal to this organization? So we wanted to show that. And the first couple episodes are sort of dedicated to that, seeing like what might draw you in. But at the same time, we wanted to show you what might frighten a sensible person away, which is why we start in, in the very first episode with the longtime leader, Doug Coe, delivering what is sort of one of his core sermon, one of his ideas. How do you understand who Jesus is? They preach a theology of Jesus plus nothing. Well, what do you mean by Jesus? Is this the Jesus that you encounter at your church? Not exactly. He says the best way to understand Jesus, he says, is to look at the example of leaders such as, and I'm quoting here, Hitler, Lenin, Mao. It's horrifying. Now, Hitler is a fascist. Mao is not. He's a communist. What's the common denominator? Strength. Absolute strength. And that's their idea of what Jesus is. And so is this kind hand, of a, you see, a Protestant reinvention of the Catholic Church? Uh, well, no, because they've drawn in Catholics as well. I mean, it was originally a Protestant organization as well. But no, it's not. I mean, Jesus plus nothing strips away everything. It strips away most of the scripture. It strips away the, strips away the prophets. It strips away theology. It strips away history. Um, it becomes really about power. Hmm. And, and, and the, you know, you look, and this, wait till you get to the fifth episode, Tom. You said you haven't seen it. We call it the Wolf King. That's their term for figures such as Donald Trump, and that's where we bring it into the present. We're saying, like, how can they embrace a figure like Trump? Because they look at his power, and they say, the power is evidence enough to us that he's chosen by God. It doesn't matter if he's uh, not a pious man. Right. They call him an imperfect vessel for God's will. Um, that, that goes beyond any kind of mainstream theology that we encounter. Um, it's a theology of power, pure and simple. Right. Yeah, and they compare him to the Persian king. Cyrus, yeah. Yeah, there you go. It certainly seemed, from the first three episodes that I watched, it certainly seemed that the vast majority, probably all of the people inside this cult, actually believe the tenets, the theology, the, 
the, this kind of Calvinistic worldview, you know, that God has chosen some people for leadership and therefore we need to basically, you know, suck up to those people or work with those people or help guide those people in a, in a way like Jesus. And at what point did you look at this and say, wait a minute, why is it that nobody has exposed this before and you did? I guess that's really my question. I, I wish I could. I wish I could make that claim, but in fact, in the series, we see a getter, Pulitzer Prize winner for the L.A. Times, mm-hmm. who in 2002 completed a, a, a year-long investigation into the family of the Fellowship, as it's sometimes called, front page of the L.A. Times, looking at the ways in which they were functioning as a liaison between the U.S. government and really the most brutal, brutal, violent forces. In no, I, I get America. that, but she wasn't an insider who came out. She wasn't an insider, but there have been a number of exposés. The first one I can find is in 1959 in the Washington Post. 1975, the great Robert Shear and Playboy put aside the other parts of the magazine. Nonetheless, they did a great investigative job looking at the ways in which this was functioning as an off-the-books bank for congressmen, which is to say an illegal bank. Right. And there's never been a follow-up. And there's no conspiracy here. There's a bigger problem. It's the conventional wisdom of the press and, and frankly, of the left and of liberals, too, who want to believe that Christian fundamentalists are these sort of pulpit pounders and Bible thumpers and these kind of Jerry Falwells in a too tight suit and a southern accent. And when someone who is sophisticated comes along, we see in the series, we got a number of members of the family to sit on camera for the first time. They felt like, okay, we're going to have to deal with this because it's happening. So we see A. Larry Ross, who is a leader of the organization, is PR man for major evangelical figures. We see former Congressman Zach Womp. We see Senator Jim Langford. And we got these people to talk about their involvement. They're not thumping their Bibles. They're not pulpit pounders. They don't fit the stereotype of what a fundamentalist would be. And yet they're exercising more power for fundamentalism and for steering the United States toward a kind of complete collapse of the wall between church and state than any of these more popular TV figures that we're familiar with. So what do we do with this knowledge, Jeff Charlotte? <laughs> we, we make some books, we make a Netflix series, you know, we bring sunlight to it, right? right. Um, it seems to me that you're saying this is essentially a cancerous force in American democracy. I mean, it, shouldn't there be a specific taking that on? We do have this thing called the First Amendment, right? right? The First Amendment. And so, for instance, there one public event, the National Prayer Breakfast, which every president since Eisenhower has spoken up, is a flagrant violation of the First Amendment. And it's a serious violation because, as both I and the New York Times have reported, it functions as an off-the-books lobbying event. It's a week-long lobbying festival, foreign actors. And episode three, we tell the story of how, through the National Prayer Breakfast, the Russian spy, Maria Butina, yeah, came in and had access to American power. That's not her taking advantage of the prayer breakfast. That's her using the prayer breakfast the way it was meant to be made. They hold a parallel event in Moscow and countries around the world. So we can say, wait a minute, we, we have that challenge. But really, what do we do? We need to stay on the story for a long time. There's been some successes. There's been some small successes that are important. In the series, we see the Reverend Eric Williams and Leslie Kern, and they took on, the family had a tax-subsidized housing, an illegal gift to congressmen. They're giving housing to congressmen in their C Street house, right? right? Registered as a church. Reverend Williams and Leslie Kern were able to lead the fight to get that 
This is not a church to get that taken away. Other stories that we see in the series, as you get into episode four, we see Congressman Bob Adderhold of Alabama. Republican congressman, longtime member of the family, has traveled to 18 countries representing the family, but as a U.S. congressman. In episode four, we see him in real time going to Romania, promoting an anti-LGBTQ agenda, trying to achieve there what they can't achieve here. And that's a hopeful story because Romanian people push back. It can't be done. Yeah, amazing stuff. Okay, I'm going to watch episodes four and five tonight. And, and, uh, and I encourage everybody to, you know, if you have a Netflix subscription, in fact, this series is worth the cost of a Netflix subscription. Check out The Family. Jeff Charlotte, thanks so much for being with us, Jeff. Thank you, Tom. Great talking with you. Rick in Norman, Oklahoma. Hey, Rick, what's up? Hey, Richard. Honored. I'm uh, still a big Marianne Williamson supporter because she seems to be the person that mostly gets the ideological issue that is where Trump is running from. And I'm, I'm at the moment very terrified by the, the Bolsonaro situation because that's, again, you, you've bounced around so many uh, with the Nazis. Uh, today you, you, mean, you mean Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil? Yeah, because it's like a playbook. You were reading it from the uh, Rise of Hitler. It's like yeah. they are still following that religion, and he's done exactly oh, that. Oh, and, and ditto that. for Hungary, and ditto for Poland, and ditto for the Philippines. Apparently, there's a few other countries that are, you know, trying to, or movements that are certainly trying to move in that direction, including the new hard right, the Alternative for Germany movement in Germany, and Marine Le Pen's movement in France. And I wanted to say, any kind of supremacism is delusional, delusions based upon delusions. Yeah. One of the things about writing really good fiction, I've found is that to be able to write a world that is so self-consistently believable that people can drop into it, and that's what the whole biblical stuff is. People have been believing it for generations and generations and keep on selling it. And it doesn't matter if it's false, because they have their self-consistent consistency to it all. So, but sure. delusional. Uh, well, I think that is, I think that's all. You know, much like science, this is all an attempt to understand and make sense of the things that don't make sense on their surface. Why do people get sick? Why do people die? Why do disasters happen? You know, why is gravity? All these kinds of things. And and you know, initially, what we had to explain these phenomena was religion. Richard, thank you for the call. Picture your face in the mirror. You see all those wrinkles around your eyes, crow's feet, under eye bags. Now imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in minutes. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. I look like me only years younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. And the best part is, Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-685-1292 and mentioning the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit triplexiderm.com today and use the code TOM at checkout. That's triplexiderm.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. 
Elaine Parker is on the line with us. She is the president of the Job Creators Network Foundation, jcnf.org is the website. You can tweet her at Elaine JCN, and the network generically, you can tweet at Job Creators USA. Elaine, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be back. You have this op-ed where you're saying that the record number of Americans participating in the labor force, this is all thanks to Donald Trump, and this white-hot labor market is threatened by far-left Democratic ideas. Do I have that right? You want to elaborate on that? Happy Labor Day weekend, because that's when the op-ed ran. Yeah, we look at some of the policies that have been pushed and promoted by the Trump administration, namely the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we have seen more people have more money in their pockets and be able to spend it. We have consumer confidence at a sky high, at sky high levels. We have uh, generational low unemployment. We have more jobs available than people to fill them. Um, We have in every demographic across the board from women, men, Hispanics, um, Asians, veterans, um, the disabled, uh, even uh, felons at the lowest unemployment records we've seen. Um, and we continue to see that. We even have ADP numbers that came out today. Um, they are, they said they got 195 payroll positions, 195,000 payroll positions created, which ex- has exceeded expectations of only 149,000. So that would lead us to believe that tomorrow's numbers are going to be pretty good for this economy. If you think this is because of the tax cut, I would say the same thing I said back when Reagan tried this, which is, you know, give me a trillion and a half dollars on a credit card and I can show you what it looks like to live large. This seems like a non-argument. At the same time, our CEOs, our U.S. CEO compensation right now, the median salary for CEOs is between four and five hundred times the average worker. In the U.K., it's 22 times. In France, it's 15 times. In Germany, it's 12 times. The top 1% right now owns 41.8% of the financial wealth of America. The bottom 60%, the rest of us basically, own 1.7%. We have a 29% poverty rate in the United States. In democratic socialist Norway, it's 10%. Our life expectancy is only 79 years. In Norway, it's almost 82 years. Our infant mortality rate is almost 6%. In Norway, it's only 2%. I could go on. We have 63% homeownership. Norway has 84%. In Norway, the minimum wage is actually a living wage. Here, the minimum wage is a poverty wage. You talk about all these jobs that are being created. The vast majority, in fact, the piece I saw in the Financial Times about three weeks ago suggested that virtually all the jobs that have been created, over, at least over the last six years, which includes the Obama expansion, have been temp jobs or what are considered you know, at-risk jobs, essentially, because there's no job security, there's no benefits, and they're at-will jobs. How can you say that this kind of right-wing neoliberal policies that were instituted by Reagan when we, when we rejected Keynesian economics in 1981 and adopted Milton Friedman's neoliberal economics, and this has, by the way, been continued under the administrations of Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, as well as all these Republican presidents, how can you say that that's been good for any workers? Workers right now are making, you know, less money now than they were making in 1980 when Ronald Reagan was elected. Tom, actually, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, if you want to talk about wage growth under this administration, we've seen faster wage growth under this administration than we have in a decade. And as a, as a matter of fact, the Bureau of Labor Statistics recently came out and adjusted the wage growth for 2018 that wages grew by 5.6 percent 
that is quicker than we that is oh that's substantial and that's what you really expect fast. when you have it that's Tom, what you Tom, expect Tom, when you have Tom, an expanding economy and rose 50 percent faster than under president obama and for the bottom 10 percent of wage earners that growth was at six and a half percent for last year and let me correct one thing norway and sweden are not socialistic economies they are free market economies. they are democratic socialist countries they they call themselves that they are free market economies and in fact the leaders of those economies came out and had to correct bernie sanders at the time when he okay, was running would you and would um, you endorse time. first of all let's let's finish the, this, this thing about wages my point is that yes of course when you're on a sugar high when you've been goosing your economy when you put a trillion and a half dollars on the credit card and i remember the days when conservatives used to complain about that now you guys appear to be celebrating that i'm guessing when a democratic president comes into office you'll go back to complaining about it right but you know when you're on a sugar high yeah you know the the job markets tighten up there's more competition for workers, and that raises wages. No doubt about that. But the economy has been essentially reconfigured. When Reagan came into office, almost a third of our workers had unions. Now it's six percent in the in the public workforce, or in the non-public workforce, in the in the private workforce. As a consequence of that, the vast majority of these jobs have no job security. These are crappy jobs. A, a lot of them. I mean, certainly there's some good jobs being created, but you can't just throw these numbers out and say, you know, the average American knows. That they're getting the short end of the stick. They're getting screwed by these neoliberal policies, trickle-down Reaganism that Trump is tripling down on. And now we've got a $21 trillion debt? What are you going to do about that? Tom, the reality is, because of the tax cuts, we actually have more money going into the Treasury than we had prior to that. We don't have a revenue problem into the Treasury. We have a spending problem. Why do we have a, oh, oh, okay. So where do you want to cut the spending? Uh, do, we, do we cut Medicare? Do away with that? So our seniors pay into Medicare their whole life, okay? Their whole life. Social Security, I'm paying into it. I hope it's there when I get there. Unfortunately, it may not be. But, but the Republican Party has always worked into. to make sure that it's not there. Is the Job Creators Network in favor you of strengthening what? Medicare or doing away with both it? Parties, both parties have hurt our Medicare and, and our Social Security system, and both parties But the Republican Party has specifically called it socialism. Ronald Reagan recorded an album about this, called it socialism, and warned us that, you know, George W. Bush tried to privatize Social Security after 2005. He said, this is the political capital I got from winning. He went on a 20-city tour trying to sell the idea of turning the entire Social Security program over to J.P. Morgan Chase and, and Wells Fargo, moving it all to the, Wells, to the banks. He had to back off because people were horrified by this. But I think pretty much everybody gets it, Elaine, that these are the economic policies you're promoting. I think it's, you know, frankly, Tom, it's an honorable Tom. tradition. You know, if you want to invoke Edmund Burke or Russell Kirk or Barry Goldwater, I understand those positions. There, you know, there's an intellectual honesty to those positions. What I don't get is why conservatives and people like yourself from these think tanks like the Job Creators Network Foundation don't own them why in the back rooms you guys are pushing really, really hard to do everything you can to damage Social Security and Medicare or privatize them. You would say that that's not damaging them, I'm assuming. And yet in public, it's like, oh, no, we love Medicare. And by the way, the Democrats have heard it, too. I don't think anybody buys that. Yes, Democrats have heard it. Tom, Tom even the New York Times, the New York Times, the liberal New York Times. I'm not talking about the New York Times. I'm talking about the Job Creators Network position. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the economic policy of the tax cuts and jobs back on whether or not people are keeping more of their own hard-earned money. And they are. Their headline was, face it, you probably got a tax cut. They had to admit that normal, everyday Americans 
did in fact get a tax cut. They are keeping more of their own money, and they're spending their money the way they see fit. And you know what happens and over time, Elaine, when people work. get tax cuts? When working people get tax cuts, you know what happens over time? They get to keep more of their own hard-earned money. Right, and their wages go down. Well, wages are showing exactly no, wages the opposite. When, when, Tom, when, no, look, look wages back are, at the history of this, Elaine. Seriously, honest to God, go back and look at this, and you're welcome to come back on the program. Go back over 50 years or 60 years. What you see, and, and I'm not talking about tax cuts for rich people. I'm talking about tax cuts for working people. Employers know how much money people take home at the end of the day. And the labor market, the market for labor employment, is an after-tax market. It's not a pre-tax market. So if employers know that if they're paying somebody $30,000 a year and that person is taking home $25,000 a year, that those workers can live on $25,000 a year or at least are willing to work for $25,000 a year. So if that person gets a tax cut and suddenly they're making $30,000 a year or they're taking home 30 instead of 25, over the next five years, and you'll see this in five years, typically three to five years periods, when there's a tax reduction on working people, over the next three to five years, their wages go down because the labor market readjusts itself. On the other hand, when taxes on working people go up, and you can see this going all the way back to 1913, when taxes on working people go up, the labor market compensates for that by raising wages. That's why wages went up dramatically in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s as taxes were going up on everybody. Reagan started cutting taxes on working people. And yes, you're right. The majority of it went to rich people, but Reagan's tax cuts, Bush tax cuts, Trump's tax cuts, they all cut taxes on working people. And what happens is over the next three to five years, the labor market adjusts and says, oh, well, these people have more money in their pockets, so we can cut back on their wages, or at least not give them any more raises. I've, I've actually never heard anything explained that way before. Well, I encourage ever. you to read John Maynard Keynes. I consider Keynes. myself fairly, fairly well-read. Um, but what I can tell you is that the Job Creators Network represents small businesses, and we call them Main Street small businesses. And they are telling us regularly that they can't find people to fill the jobs. And as a result, they are raising wages, and they are they are. Yes, this is what happens in a tight labor market. Home. Sure. I have a woman who owns a manufacturing plant in a manufacturing company in northern Illinois. Okay, she employs about 30 people. She can't find people. And as a result, she's paying higher wages. As a result of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, she gave everybody a raise. She gave everybody a bonus. And here's the kicker. And she's paying 100% of their health insurance premiums. That's, that's wonderful, Elaine. What are you going to do when it comes time to pay back that trillion and a half dollars that produced this little bubble? Look, our politicians are going to have to make some decisions, and we don't have a revenue problem. This tax cut has produced tremendous revenue into the Treasury. So we're spending we need to too take much a look money. at how we're spending it. Absolutely. Right. So I we mean, need to cut back on food on stamps? Can we agree? Trump can just we said we need to cut that? on food stamps, right? No, I don't agree on I that. I don't think that we have a spending problem at all. I think that we have a revenue problem. Spending problem at all. No, I don't. But but we'll have to leave it there. Uh, you all know, right, we'll have to agree to disagree. Yes. Elaine Parker, the president of the Job Creators Network Foundation, jcnf.org, Job Creators USA, or uh, Elaine JCN on Twitter. Elaine, thanks for dropping by. Thanks, Tom. Good talking with you. We'll be back. Mark in Columbia, Missouri. Hey, Mark, what's up? Hi, Tom. Great info. And um, I know you don't want to admit it, but you just sliced her to ribbons. 
Well, we'll um, see. I mean, you know, her understanding of economics is different from my understanding of economics. So it sounded to her like I was speaking in gibberish. But the whole thing about tax cuts, that's why wages for working people have only gone up 11% since 1980, whereas wages for CEOs have gone up 940%. It's real simple. The CEOs are not working in a labor market where there are market forces and everybody else is. Okay, to my question, mm-hmm. you mentioned Amy Cob. Klobuchar yeah. as the maybe the only other centrist. And well, I, th- I think Kamala Harris I'm, might, too. I think if, if Joe Biden pulls yeah. out of the race or starts losing badly, I think it opens a space for both Klobuchar and Harris. I don't want to vote for oil money. So if they're taking oil money, I do not want to vote for them. Well, Joe Biden has said that so, he will not take money from fossil fuel executives. And he, you know, we'll see if he holds this fundraiser tonight. But, you know, I think up to this point, they've been trying to be true to that. Um, I'm frankly concerned that they're taking money from banking executives and insurance, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, whatever. Do you think that we'll end up voting for a centrist? I think that if the Democratic Party nominates a centrist for president, that it's going to end badly. Thanks a lot for the call, uh, Mark. Good talking with you. Rob in Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Rob, what's on your mind today? Your last guest pointed out a few problems with the whole relationship between small businesses and healthcare industry. Basically, I've always said that the reason why employers offer healthcare is because insurance companies like to privatize the profit and socialize the losses, meaning if you're healthy enough to work, you're healthy enough to insure. And the other thing she kind of bragged about, and the thing that I've been always complaining about, is like if you want to help a small business, make it so no business can offer health insurance. Right. Because when she was make it Medicare for all. That, you know, yeah, exactly. That would be the ultimate answer. But prior to that, I would say that when you brag about paying 100% of uh, your uh, insurance, well, basically what you're doing is taking that 1000 bucks, 500 bucks a month, and taking it out of your salary. So you're no longer getting paid for that. Instead of paying you that wage and letting you go out and shop for it, which would be an open market thing, they're taking it. And, and then the second side of that is not only are they taking that um, medical deduction, they're, they're taking that medical deduction away from you because now they're paying it. Right. And you don't get the But here's, the, here's, the, here's the, the one problem with that, Rob, under the existing laws. And I think we probably agree that we need Medicare for all, basically, yeah, bottom yeah. line. No, I, but the I problem with that, that right now is that as an employer, I pay my employees health insurance. I pay for that. And our little company, we are a small company, our little company can deduct that so it becomes tax deductible, a tax deductible expense. We don't pay an income tax on that. But if I simply said to Sean and Nate and, you know, said, he, you know, here's your, here's your health insurance money. And they went out in the marketplace and bought their own health insurance they would have to pay income tax on that money. And that's how the tax law has been skewed to push employer-provided health insurance rather than individual-provided health insurance. So that's one of many ways. Right. And, and that's kind of my main point, that the insurance company knows that. They want to basically insure healthy people. But Absolutely. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Rob. Good to hear from you. Marsha in Tustin, Hi. California. Hey, Marsha, what's up? I would like your take on a conservative talking point. Mm-hmm. Whenever people bring up the fact that other countries have free this and that education and health care, they always say, well, yeah, but the population is a lot smaller. And I'd like your take on that. Does it really make a difference? No. 
It doesn't. Actually, the, the, the larger the population, the easier it is to administer a system and the less likely the system is to be disrupted by the occasional person who gets really, really sick. This is the problem that right. Vermont had. Vermont actually passed legislation for a single-payer health care system. It was signed by the governor, and they tried to put it into place, but they only have 600,000 people in Vermont. And so if you get 20 or 30 mm -hmm. people who are costing a million bucks a year because they got some really serious illness or heart tra you know, transplants or whatever, right. it wipes out the system. So the larger the population, the easier it is to do a national health care system. And the smaller That's the population, great. the more difficult it is. So there's, there's your simple answer, Marcia. Hope that helps. Great. Great. That's wonderful. No, I just want to thank you. I've listened to you ever since the Bush debacle started. Okay. So yeah. thanks for all you're doing. You're welcome. Thank <laughs> you, Marcia. It's great to hear from you. You hear about it on the news. You see it in advertising. You read about it in the paper. You see websites devoted to it. It's CBD oil. And the best one in the market right now is New Leaf Naturals. Uh, it's from NewLeafNaturals.com. N-U-LeafNaturals. CBD oil doesn't get you high, so it's great for using, you know, if you want to use cannabinoids without having to deal with marijuana. It's non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, no additional additives, grown in the USA. The only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's n-u-leafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to n-u-leafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. That's newleafnaturals.com. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And just to put some frosting on that cake of the, of the conversation that I just had with Elaine Parker, I was rather surprised when she said she had never heard, you know, my explanation for why tax cuts for working people actually depress wages, tax raises, tax increases on working people actually raise wages. Working people are in a labor marketplace. There's no denying it. I mean, she was making that point just a minute earlier where she said there's more jobs and therefore there's employers are competing for employees and therefore wages are going up over this short period of time, this, this relatively short period of time. It's been going on actually for about eight or nine years, slowly, but, you know, surely. That's the labor marketplace. So then the question becomes, well, why is it the CEOs are making, you know, millions of dollars a year? whereas they used to make hundreds of thousands. Why is it that CEO pay has gone up over 900% since Reagan started this whole thing in 1981, whereas worker pay has only gone up 11%? And the answer is really simple. CEOs don't exist in a labor marketplace. There's not that much competition for CEO jobs. Yeah, there's a lot of people who'd love to be CEOs, but you've got to have several different things in order to be a CEO. You've got to have uh, the ability and willingness to destroy people's lives and destroy communities. You've got to be at a certain level functionally a sociopath in order to be a CEO in most companies. Not all companies, but in most companies, in most large companies. I think it was Teddy Roosevelt said there's never been a large fortune without a large crime behind it. So number one, there's a very limited number of people who are functionally sociopaths, people who could just lay off 5,000 people and destroy their lives 
and actually profit from it and think that's a good thing. Or who could be, you know, like the, the CEO of a health insurance company and try to figure out ways to screw people. Or CEO of a bank and figure out ways to try to take more money out of, out of people's checking accounts. I mean, all these things, right? So there's a small market of, of sociopaths who also have college degrees, who also have experience in the business world, and who also know how to run a company. So CEOs have been able to write their own ticket. Taxes don't affect CEOs. Actually, maybe they do, and the reason why the top tax rate has gone from 74% down to in the 30s now is one of the reasons why CEOs are taking so much money. But still, they, they don't have that competition in the, in the labor marketplace that working people have. I was just astonished that she had never heard that. It, it's just, it's, it should be so obvious. Kevin in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Um, some some magazine in the 80s, uh, I, I'm sorry, the 60s, talked about Barry Goldwater's mental health. They thought he was mentally unstable. And then he sued the magazine for libel and won. And apparently, I heard from the website Vox, it set a precedent for cases like this when we actually have a mentally unstable president, the Goldwater rule. Yeah, the Goldwater rule is something that was, I, I, I don't know about a lawsuit against a magazine. What I do know is that there were a number of uh, people in the psychiatric, psychological, psychotherapeutic community profession who in the early 60s were very concerned about Barry Goldwater. And, uh, they, and everybody was concerned about nuclear war. I mean, you have to understand the, the hysteria around nuclear war in the 1960s was greater than the hysteria around ISIS and Al-Qaeda after 9-11 even. My dad bought a house in Lansing that had a basement and in fact, houses with basements were being sold with the benefit of if there's a nuclear war, you've got a basement, right? People were building fallout shelters. And he actually, my dad actually had a contractor come out and talk to him about what would it take to put a subfloor underneath the main floor of the house right above the basement and put three inches of dirt on it, soil on it, which would prevent radiation from getting to the basement so we could all hide in the basement in the event of a nuclear war. That's how frightened people wow. were. And so when Goldwater came along in 64 and Lyndon Johnson ran that ad, and it only ran once, that daisy ad, it appeared on television one time where the little girl is pulling the daisy and it ends with a nuclear bomb going off. When that happened, you had all these people in the, in the mental health profession freaking out and saying, yeah, you know, Barry Goldwater could lead us to this because of his extreme paranoia, uh, you know, around the, the Soviet Union. And that led the American Psycholo Psychiatric Association to, I believe it was the Psychiatric Association, it might have been the American Psychological Association, they kind of compete, but they, you know, they have different groups. But it led one of them to come up with what was called, the, what is to this day called the Goldwater Rule, which is you don't diagnose political figures unless you personally know them. And if you personally know them, then your diagnosis has to be in, in confidence because of patient-client confidentiality. Okay, I feel like that's kind of dumb because I've met a sociopath, uh, many actually in my life, and it's actually really dumb if you drag him into a therapist office because they're just going to lie their way out of it. Right. So yeah, what's the sociopaths point? are very charming. In fact, that's you know that's one of the more common characteristics. You but, were a psychotherapist yeah, briefly, yeah, right? and 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 I was I was rostered by the state of Vermont, and I ran a, a, a for five years. Although I did mostly the administrative and fundraising stuff, Louise actually ran the the staff that was doing therapy and working with kids, but we ran a community for abused kids. But yeah, I need to move along, but thank you for the call. Gary in Baden, Pennsylvania. Hey, Gary, what's up? I want to get back to your personal observation about the liar-in-chief. Well, I couldn't agree more with you. 
I've always said this. He has a crime boss mentality. This is this is basically sad to say at his core. I don't take pleasure saying this. That's my take, and I like to close with a quote, if I may. Sure. It's not mine, but uh, I think it originally came from Aristotle or something, but I think it's relevant. A republic is only as good as the sum of its parts, period. I'll just share this with you just straight up. This is off CNN's website, CNN.com. As a federal organized crime prosecutor, I learned that the mafia uses a practice known as kicking up or paying tribute to the boss. Essentially, all members of a mafia family must make sure that some of their earnings end up in their boss's pocket. Now, for the underlings, this is a way of currying favor with the boss. For the boss, it's how the boss gets rich. This is how mafia families work. And this is a you know, former federal prosecutor who went after mafia families. And this prosecutor, Ellie Honig, is saying, hey, this is what Mike Pence did when he stayed at Trump's hotel in Ireland. This is what Bill Barr is doing when he's putting 30000 bucks into Trump's pockets by having his Christmas party at, Trump hotel in, at Trump's hotel in, in Washington, D.C. It's called kicking up. And I keep going back to this, you know, for a couple of years now, I have been saying that Trump, in my mind, I mean, I look at the way he behaves, the way that he demands complete loyalty, the, the way that he's willing to break laws, the way that he draws people into that he's a mafia boss, basically. His role model are mafia bosses. And I'm convinced that's the case. So would you like to watch the Tom Hartman program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. And you become a supporter of the program through Patreon. You have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want, and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out, patreon.com slash Tom Hartman. Thank you. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, boy, I've gotten two emails now from Donald Trump. Fred, we're seven days away from the most important congressional election of 2019. And he's pitching, I'm not even going to say the guy's name, he's pitching a uh, Republican. He says he's a fantastic conservative who has my total endorsement. He's running against a big government socialist handpicked by Nancy Pelosi in the North Carolina 9th District special election. The stakes are high. We need to win. America doesn't need more obstructionist Democrats who will be a rubber stamp for Nancy Pelosi's radical socialist agenda. <laughs> In order to have the resources we need to win this election, we need to raise $100,000 by midnight tonight. Please contribute $42 by midnight tonight, and your contribution will be instantly double-matched to ensure victory in North Carolina. Now, he's not actually saying in this email that the money's going to go to this guy in North Carolina. My guess is the money's going to go to Donald Trump's pocket. But the guy that is the, the Democrat who is running in that race is Dan McCready. And Dan McCready, this is a special election coming up in North Carolina's 9th Congressional District. It's next Tuesday. The Republicans are doubling down on this. They are sending Donald Trump. They're starting to freak out. Panicking Republican Party. Meanwhile, you've got a few more Republicans who have said, eh, enough in Texas. 
I think they're up to six now, Republicans who have just said, nah, we're not, we're not going to be there anymore. Lawrence in uh, Marina, California. Hey, Lawrence, what's up? Oh, you were talking earlier about uh, rebranding the Republican Party. Right. As How about the greedy uh, oligarch party? party? Right. I got a better uh, brand for them. Okay. It works with uh, Moscow Mitch. Okay. And it's the Republicans. They, they would be called the Soviet Republicans. <laughs> okay. With Moscow Mitch. The Soviet Republicans. All right. Lawrence. That's all I got. <laughs> okay. Lawrence, thanks a lot. Great to hear from you. Tim in Burlington, Vermont. Hey, Tim, what's up? I yearn for burn. You need to talk more about the socialism debate. People are uneducated. And, I mean, I've debated, this is a, for instance, I've debated with some Republicans that are for Trump. And, you know, I'm astonished when one would tell me that he's delivered 88% of what he promised. And, I, you know, I, I'm just at all, I'm saying, where, where are really? you getting this information? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah, really? where are you getting this yeah, and, and I mean, you know, wait a minute. Mexico's going to pay for the wall. Hillary's going to go to jail. ISIS is going to be destroyed. He's going to release his taxes. He's going to halt funding sanctuary cities. He's going to open up the libel laws. He's going to repeal Obamacare. He's never going to play golf or take a vacation. He's going to bring back 50,000 coal jobs. He's going to fight for the gay community. He's, every American family is going to see an average $4,000 raise. He's going to eliminate the federal deficit. I don't see any of that, Tim. Hey, hey, I, I hear you. It's, yeah. yeah, it's bizarre. Tim, thanks for the call. Until last year, I'd never endorsed a weight loss product, but I decided to change that after reading about university research into a molecule in olive oil that regulates appetite. And my wife Louise convinced me that there was one that was worth sharing. Well, a year later, I'd have to say she's right. Louise said once her appetite and cravings were under control, losing weight was easy, and she's kept it off. I've also heard from listeners that it's worked for them, and now my producer Sean is trying Ridizone too. The fact that the only ingredient in Ridizone occurs naturally in the body and is completely non-stimulant appealed to both Louise and Sean. Sean says she's not thinking about food or hungry between meals anymore, and she feels full longer after eating. Listen, if you're looking to try losing weight Listen, if you're looking to lose weight this season, I strongly suggest you give non-prescription Ridgizone a try. Use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive up to 65% off plus free shipping. Go to Ridgizone.com. It's R-I-D-U-Z-O-N-E.com. R-I-D-U-Zone.com. Ridgizone.com. Promo code TOM. That's Ridgizone.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is It Came From Something Awful, How a Toxic Troll Army Accidentally Memed Donald Trump Into Office by Dale Byrne. This is from the introduction. On a warm summer day some 13 years ago, I found myself in the frigid air of Baltimore's convention center attending Octacon, a gathering of otaku superfans of Japanese media, mainly anime and manga. I didn't particularly like anime. I felt I was a little too old for the event. I'd attended a few times when I was in high school in the late 90s. Back then, it had been held in a set of hotel conference rooms darkened to play obscure animation taped off Japanese TV. But in recent years, the crowds had grown big enough to require the city's largest venue. And the event had evolved, too, into an elaborate festival where otherwise isolated suburban kids came to bond over their favorite TV shows. 
and he goes through a fairly lengthy description of the convention center and whatnot. And he says, for this reason, entering into the cool, safe bubble of Octacon, where adolescents attempted to commune with the comforting kid's fantasy on the other side of the screen, felt slightly unsettling to me, though I couldn't put my finger on why. And at a certain point, wandering the triangle-shaped halls lined with wooden ships trapped in bottles, handing out flyers for my webcomic to teens dressed as rubber monsters, things started to get weird. Not for me, then. I hardly knew what I was seeing then. But for all of us, now. Years later, I realized I had become an indifferent witness to a turning point in history, a vast secret hinge upon which world events would swing. What did I see? Well, more of the same. Kids in costumes. At the front of one room, there was a 15-year-old boy with a sharp chin, golden locks, and a baseball cap going through a PowerPoint presentation that was a mixture of web statistics and lewd jokes mocking various types of cartoon pornography. Excuse me. These included many fan-drawn images of the boy himself, depicted as a curvaceous pink cartoon cat girl wearing white panties. As the increasingly silly Photoshop drawings slid by, the raucous crowd shouted words of encouragement, gearing up for the late-night techno dance party that would follow. Despite all the adulation, the boy seemed slightly ill at ease. The cap was slung a little too low, as if to disguise his eyes, and he let his friends at the table do most of the talking. This was one of the first meetings of the now infamous online message board, 4chan.org. The boy in the cap was the site's founder, Christopher Moot Pohl. In October 2003, bored and in need of porno, he had programmed 4chan on a whim to trade pictures of anime girls with his friends, but soon discovered thousands and eventually millions of other people wanted to use it. It seems ridiculous to say the site was important. In Alt-America, David Neewert wrote that the Nazi-worshipping alt-right began with 4chan, where people were talking online about Japanese anime. Few of these books, including Neewert's, offer an explanation for how this could have possibly happened. How we got from anime otaku to the anime Nazis of 2016 and onward. How all of this resulted in internet weirdos marching with tiki torches and similar fantasy-themed costumes in Charlottesville in 2017. Of course, the kids in that room weren't Nazis, far from it. The last thing they wanted to do was discuss politics. And at that moment, I certainly didn't feel as though I was present for some great turning point in history. In fact, it seemed like I was confronting yet another moment of anti-history, as the vast landscape of the American suburban nowhere land was imported into the convention center, a place that, in its expanse of smooth, clean carpeting, model ships, and big tumbling geometric shapes, felt a little like an infinite kid's rec room. The teens weren't trying to make a mark in the world, they were trying to escape from it by pantomiming discarded scraps of fiction. However, looking back, it all reads like some crazy premonition. As the microphone was passed from rubber dinosaur to trench coat mafia kid to see which to ask their curly-headed leader questions, the teens slash monsters kept debating and joking about things called memes and trolls. In the mid-2000s, these terms were meaningless to anyone outside the room. But later they broke out of that room and saturated every inch of the world. And stranger still, from 2016 onward, memes and trolls became central concepts that obsessed political commentators. Almost overnight, the terms invaded the domain of world leaders and redefined the contest between them. Now there are Russian trolls, Facebook trolls, and of course, the original 4chan trolls, all jiggling through the ether.
Back then I was surprised to find that I knew what these terms meant. Before I encountered 4chan and Octacon, the site constantly popped up in my webcomics referral logs, the data that shows where people came from when they visit your site. When 4chan began, it wasn't all that different from other online message boards. It was a place to post content and talk to people on the internet. At the time, it imported a few innovations from Japanese sites, which accounted for some of its popularity. It was easy to post images. And following a Japanese custom, it didn't require the user to sign up for an account. Anyone could post under a default name, which eventually became the name of all 4chan users, Anonymous. But this hardly explained why it ballooned so rapidly, why almost as soon as it appeared, people began gathering to celebrate it. The book, It Came From Something Awful by Dale Byrne. Let's check in with Bob Ney and uh, talk media news and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, new book by Ellen Renner. Bob, what's in the news today? I, have to, I just have to start with this story, uh, the, Alabama, the Alabama claim by President Trump. Oh, Sharpie Gate. Hey, have you seen well, have you seen some of the stuff going around the internet? There's a picture of a, yes. of, a of a desert with a bunch of little black lines drawn in it with sharpies. It says Trump proof that yes. Trump, Trump built his wall. Uh, you know, one where he, right. he puts a little line above his own head next standing next to Obama. Truth proof Trump is taller than Obama. I mean, it's 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 his it's hilarious. Bob. Well, when I when I started at six twenty this morning, one of the stations said, "Do you have your sharpie handy?" And I said, "Yes, <laughs> I'm going to make my I'm going to make my own news on the side of the news I send out. There I'm going to do that." There you go. But the the reason I wanted to say something about this story quickly is because he's come under fire now, the president, from prominent meteorologists who have no political dog in the hunt, right? Mm-hmm. But they're saying this is incorrect information. Okay, he today, in the last few hours, doubled down on his assertion now that the storm was at one point headed for Alabama. Now, he doubled down on that. But this is the rest of the story. Okay, he's now saying that this week old map had been doctored to demean him, and now. Now, this is all fake news in order to demean him. First of all, the media didn't place that map there. If if anything, somebody in the office must have thought it would be humorous if they were going to demean him with with a Sharpie. I'm just saying, you know, this is just, he can't let something go at all. And so to double down on this and say that, this is fake news, and it's to demean him. It came from his own organization. What's so, so I, amazing, you know, when I, first, when I first saw that picture and first saw the news story, I thought, eh, you know, this will be a 20-minute story, right? It's another example of Trump being thin-skinned and, you know, willing to lie about anything. I mean, he's, he's told 13,000 lies so far, according to the Washington Post, if my memory serves me right. But this um, even gets more amazing with the disaster. So I, just, I needed to mention it. Yeah, the he more doubled he doubles, then he doubles down on it, then he triples down on it. Then, then we find out it's actually a violation of federal law to alter a oh, weather map law. produced by NOAA. Correct. So I just I just wanted to mention so that. So somebody uh, committed a the crime. The other story, 
Right. Well, I don't know if they'll do anything about it. I doubt it. But yeah. And then the other story that really, I hate to say this, doesn't matter, but the architect of his Middle East peace plan is leaving the White House. And I don't know if anybody really knows him, but Jason Greenblatt is going to leave the uh, administration in several weeks and go to the private sector. Hmm. Usually they follow up in the news stories of why it matters, and frankly, it really doesn't because the Middle East peace team is Jared Kushner, U.S. Ambassador to Israel David Friedman, and the Kushner deputy, uh, Avi Berkowitz. And, of course, um, Netanyahu has praised the work of, of Greenblatt, but the truth is there is no... Middle East peace plan. They've announced the economic part of it, but not the political part of it. They're holding that to after the Israeli election. But none of this will matter who they really replace him with, because there is no peace plan. There's none. And it's negotiated only on one side by Trump. So I just wanted to mention that he's leaving, but it's not going to matter uh, to report who actually replaces him, basically. Right. And uh, a judge has ruled against the terrorism watch list, which is very interesting, because the federal judge ruled yesterday. This is the list that they check you against for at airports? Well, there's yes, there's two of them, actually. There's the no-fly list, which they check at the airports, which had a court decision against it, which forced the government to, you know, do something about it. The late Kennedy was on that list, yeah. And he actually told me personally about that. You know, he worked on some legislation with us, and he had told about that story of how he kept going and they kept stopping him because he was on a terror no-fly list. It's amazing. He told you that when you were in Congress. Yes, and John Dingell also told us the story of how he kept getting stopped. And at one point in time, they took John Dingell aside to actually have him basically strip-searched at the airport, the late John Dingell. And the best one is uh, uh, the civil rights icon, John Lewis, Congressman John Lewis, who could not get himself off the no-fly list. He was being stopped, and they, the government told him, why don't you just go ahead and carry papers? on you. And John Lewis said, yeah, that's what they did in South Africa. No, I'm not doing that. So right. I did want to mention that. Now, that's the no-fly list. This is a second list, okay. and this is known or suspected terrorists. When Cat Stevens, who is now Yusuf Islam, came into America, he was on the suspected terrorist list because of his name, Yusuf Islam. Whoa. And he was turned around and sent back to London, you know, the singer Cat Stevens. Right. So this is this list. Now, What's going to be built up because of this court case, though, from the administration? Because the administration is answering that, you know, of course, this is going to hurt the battle on terrorism, and this is not discriminatory. But the judge has said this type of screening is absolutely unconstitutional. So the reality of the story is this is not going to allow for terrorism. What this will do, this court case of this ruling, if the Trump administration doesn't plan to fight it, will force them to do the right thing and clean the list up. Well, that would be good. <laughs> that would be very good. Maybe. <laughs> Bob Nay with Talk Media News. Thank you, Bob. We'll see you in Alabama. Oh, yeah? <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Well, at least we've avoided the disaster that we all knew was coming. Right, Bob? <laughs> Harbin here with you, and boy, six Republican senators, Laura Clawson reporting over at Daily Kos, six Republican senators who are up for re-election in 2020 and who voted to support Donald Trump's emergency wall declaration are losing millions of dollars in order to pay for that wall. 
Tom Tillis in North Carolina. He's up for re-election. His state, North Carolina, is losing $80 million to the wall, a $32 million elementary school at Fort Bragg. This is all military, by the way. These are military bases. Fort Bragg Elementary School has been canceled. There's a battalion complex, an ambulatory care center in Camp Lejeune, uh, scheduled to get a $40 million upgrade. Not happening. Florida is losing military construction to money that's going to hurricane-damaged bases, or was. Now it's going to the wall. Uh, Kentucky, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's state, he's losing $62 million, which was slated to rebuild his school. Sorry, military kids, Trump needs his wall. Martha McSally in Arizona, she's up for election after losing in 2018 and being appointed by John, you know, after John McCain died. She said, yeah, the Defense Department says, I'm good, no problem. No, Arizona's losing 30 million bucks. Cory Gardner in Arizona, his state is losing $8 million. Uh, Lindsey Graham, South Carolina, his state is losing $11 million. This is all in military spending within the state to help, mostly to help military families. Senator John Cornyn, his state, Texas, is losing $48 million. Some serious stuff. The uh, healthcare industry is fighting back. This is absolutely fascinating. This whole surprise billing thing you go into the hospital and you think that you've got insurance that's going to cover everything, and you get home and you got, and suddenly you've got a bill for five or ten thousand bucks because the anesthesiologist was out of network and you didn't even know because you were unconscious, or because they used some machine piece of machinery that wasn't covered by your insurance policy. This is the new gotchas. Right, the new gotchas. And the hospitals are making money on this. The doctors are making money on this. And the insurance companies are saving money on this. So both Republicans and Democrats in both the House and the Senate are proposing legislation to stop this problem called surprise billing. And now, guess what? There's a pack, as a mystery group. It's called the Doctor-Patient Unity and it spent $13 million in 20 states just since July on an advertising campaign telling people that this is you know, bad policy, don't let your legislators do this, stop them, all this kind of thing. Plus, the American Medical Association has spent $11.5 million trying to, both of these groups trying to keep surprise billing intact. This is nuts, right? I, the leading cause of bankruptcies in America is still somebody got sick. It's still, it's still these huge deductibles that we still have. And there is something, you know, very, very wrong with this. And, it, and it, A, what this tells me is that if we want to solve our health care situation in the United States, we need to go for Medicare for all, number one. And it needs to be comprehensive, fully inclusive, and no more of this, oh, there's 20% that we don't cover BS. Um, just straightforward, number one. And the second thing it tells me is, if they're going to spend you know, $20 million, the AMA and this new group that's sprung up, just fighting this simple legislation to stop surprise billing, they're going to declare nuclear war against us. They're going to declare war against us when it comes to Medicare for all in a huge way. So we need to get ready for that. We need to do some serious educational work about what's going on here and where we go with this. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right? The people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 